Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. It's another fateful and turbulent week here in Israel. A law that is a key element of the government's controversial judicial overhaul is moving through the Knesset. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition appear intent on passing the law eliminating what is known as the reasonableness clause through the Knesset before summer recess begins next week. The protest movement is just as determined not to let that happen, with demonstrations and disruptions planned in coming days. Of all of the elements of the protest, there is one that is making the biggest impact. And well, it should because it affects Israel's very survival. Hundreds of senior fighter pilots, elite commandos, cyber intelligence specialists in the Israeli military reserve have told their commanders that they will no longer report for volunteer duty if the government forges ahead with this reasonableness legislation. This step is viewed as the first one in its plan to drastically reduce the power of Israel's courts to limit the behavior of its political leadership. That, opponents say, will remove Israel from the family of liberal democracies. Later on in the podcast, we'll talk to Haaretz senior analyst Amos Harel about the political impact of this development. But first, here to discuss the controversial actions of the reservists from a personal perspective is one of them, Iftach Golov. Hi, Iftach. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for the great invitation. How are you? I'm pretty good. <laughs> How are you is the question. I'm staying optimist. First of all, for those who aren't familiar with the way that the Israel Defense Forces work, can you please explain the difference between regular soldiers drafted into the Israeli army when they're 18 years old and the group of soldiers that you represent? In Israel, once you finish the, we call it the regular uh, basic serving, the free or two is whatever, then you continue um I would say defending Israel in your reserve unit. Specifically, the reservists comprise the major force of the IDF, not only the combat units, but also intelligence and the pilots. Of course, we're doing it until we get, we reach, let's say, uh, the age that now we're not able physically to do it anymore. Some of us re- even do it volunteeringly until they reach 50, 60, even 70, if we're talking about, um, uh, let's say, technical units. The movement that I'm representing here is what we call in Hebrew Achim Laneshek, brother and sisters in arms uh, in English. Uh, I would say that we are the major uh, group in the protest movement in Israel for pro-democracy because we represent the major vector, which is uh, Israel IDF. And this group, brothers and sisters in arms, do you make decisions about what to do regarding your service or refusal to serve as a group, or is everybody acting as an individual? Everybody acting as an individual. This is a very sensitive situation right now, so it's very much on the personal level. What we hear, we're saying, the government is promoting processes right now that literally undermine tearing apart the IDF and, of course, putting Israel in great risk because it tears apart the army. Then it's on the personal level. We're here just to put in an alert saying, you're destroying the army. Tell me a little bit about your background and your service. Tell me your story and how you got to be involved in this. Where do you come from? What was your service like? And what kind of uh, military reserve service do you do as much as you can discuss it? And tell me a little bit how you came to be involved in Brothers and Sisters in Arms. Village boy, <laughs> born and raised in Upper Galilee, Hospina, uh, next to the city of Tzfat. 
in a very Zionist house, I would say, educational secular house. Um, I volunteer being in the um, in American way that would be in the army, the ground units, the special uh, the special forces. So I served during the uh, uh, second intifada, where I also got in um, my injury. I'm also a disabled veteran, and um, I guess just um, as many other thousands of Israelis at the very beginning uh, that recognized that something wrong is going on about one week or two weeks after the declaration of Netanyahu with the four bullets uh, describing the goals of these governments and then you see that after two weeks um, the government step by step promoted things that completely irrelevant to those four goals. It wasn't about normalization with the Arabic nation. Uh, it wasn't about the economy crisis in Israel. It wasn't about anything. And then they came with what, of course, and that's going to be the first and the last time. Um, then I'm going to use this terminology, what they call judicial reform, which of course it's an overrule. Um, then because of this astonishing gap, Thousands of Israeli um, of Israelis in Tel Aviv mainly went to the Bima Square, also known as the Umbrella Protest, and then a group, a small group of people, with the nucleus uh, initiating the very f- uh, first uh, fundamental team of what's about to be Achim Laneshek, brother and sisters in arms, of a three day journey, three days journey, which I naturally, you know, just like a moth <laughs> to <laughs> to a fire, I said something is going on. It is in line with my mentality. I joined them and sent them... This was a a protest march through the country, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that the nice translation from Hebrew to English would be back Mm -hmm. at the front line defending Israel democracy. Mm -hmm. And do you believe this goes beyond traditional left and right divides? Does this politicizing military service or do you feel like this is beyond something that's just left versus right, Likud versus the left? It's not about right and left mm-hmm. it's about right and wrong and of course from abroad it it's it hard to understand what's going on what's going on in israel uh, but step by step i think that people understand that the judicial coup or other things that the private militias that breaking the police right now. You're talking about uh, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir wanting to set up a national guard that's distinctive from the police yep, and, the, yep, and the military. Exactly. I think it's an indicator or indicators for those who try to stay naive for a second or objective, saying, okay, there's a crisis, civilian crisis in Israel, and it's not, I would say, about any side in the political map. It's just a fact there's a, a process going on. Extremists have taken power in Israel. And for us, it's brilliant, okay? Because from any, any crisis, it's, it's a stage for growth. It's not about right and left. There's no more left and right in Israel. Astonishingly, after, let's say, 70, how many? 75 years after the Declaration of Independence, we have completely lost the road. So what we're trying to say, if you believe in the Declaration of Independence, the values enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, civil rights, democracy, there's different problems, perhaps we speak about it later on in Israel, but the judicial overall, whatever you want to call it, reform, enable us, or to many Israelis recognize that this is not it. There's a gap in Israel. We have a problem in leadership 
we are not being represented for more than four decades. None of the mo most, I would say, the governments in the five decades in Israel haven't coped with the, co with the problems, core problems in the state of Israel. Specifically, in the group that, that I'm affiliated, you can imagine that we have more than orthodox people from the right side, real one, from Jabotinsky, Beitar. We have people from the left, from the kibbutzim. We, but we all see things very clear. Either we believe in the values embedded in the Declaration of Independence, or we're going to the other way, which is what we're seeing right now in the government, and that's religious coercion, fundamentalism, fascistic threats. That's why we're in the street. What do you say to people who accuse you of having crossed a red line, that the defense of the country is one thing and politics is another, and you should not risk the country's security because of politics, and that's exactly what you're doing, or that's exactly what the reservists are doing by saying we are going to perhaps you know, withhold our skills, our critical skills from the IDF to defend the country because of our political beliefs. I'm sure that most people that hear right now are not going to be surprised. All the campaign, demagogy, empty terminology, what I call the syndrome of the animal farm, is not new. I'm sorry. And for me, as a Zionist Jew, knowing the history and the fact that Israel, the state of Israel, is a, a statement, global statement, to the Union Nation of how people came from the fallen of democracies, rise of dictatorships. For me, I'm, I'm not surprised. All this syndrome of what we called inverse world, opposite world, where the patriots become the traitors. Let's look right now in this decade, see what's going on in Hungary, Poland, Turkey. It's the same. Um, I think that being brave in life personally, but also... Um, if you think about what the values that the IDF should reflect, you have to stand and be brave, although it might be a bit controversial. So you feel comfortable using the tool of military service to make a political statement? You think it's legitimate? That's, I don't think it's only legitimate. I think it's the most important thing. We are defending Israel from any threat. We swear doing it against any threat, external or internal. Now it's internal. So tell me what the last seven months have been like for you, how fighting this battle on the streets resembles or doesn't resemble uh, what it's like to be in the military fighting a battle and um, how it's affected you, how it's changed your life. Personally, what happened to me is that I finished my, I, I just finished my PhD in biophysics. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, that was uh, that used what I used to do in my real civilian life. I haven't done it for more than five months because I feel like I'm back in terms of the, uh, let's say, the atmosphere, the emotional part, is, yeah, I feel that I'm back again serving my country for exactly uh, the same values I think Israel um, should represent, same values in America, same values in, in Britain. So it is mu quite much the same. The conflict is astonishing, because specifically for us, with a ticket of security, meeting the police, um, it's, it's very, very, very emotional. It's a, it, make it, it makes it much harder for us doing, doing it. 
um, because it's uh, it's an absurd also almost. But um, we understand what we have to do. So back in March, when we had this big conflict uh, with the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, responding to the threats by the reservists that they're not going to turn up for training duty, mm-hmm. that was back in March, and that was actually one of the factors that led to the suspension of the legislation um, and Netanyahu firing Gallant and then not firing Gallant. Presumably, seemingly. With Netanyahu, it's always, <laughs> right? Yeah. But um, the last few days, the reservist strike has been back in the headlines this is specifically a step beyond what what you guys were saying in March. You mm-hmm. are you are now not going to report for any kind of service, either training or if you were ordered to to come in, you you wouldn't come in. How have things advanced between March and now? I think that we became all the protest movements, mm-hmm. specifically brothers and sisters in arms, are much more vigilant, mm-hmm. educated. Um, they. When I say they, I mean the uh, the coalition of destruction for the sake of this conversation. That's the way I'm going to call them. They did a lot of mistakes, strategic mistakes, in terms of um, hybris and whatever. They did. They tried to promote all the the coup very fast. They did not expect that a protest movement will be so efficient in in inhibiting them. In a way, we're kind of back in terms of the uh, operational stage. We have advanced a few months, where we, but we're back in the same situation. But under the radar, what they try to do, and of course this is quite known, I think, I think for most people, we call it here in Israel, they're doing the salami method or the, the Hungarian protocol. After the, the event with Gallant, they went back, let's say, behind the scenes, and they understood that they have to, to change the tactic. And it took us a while, the protest movement, to adjust in this arm race, uh, what exactly needs to be done. So um, what we're trying to say right now to the government and also to you of Gallant, in this chess game, we haven't even moved the queen. The fact that we are threatening right now of us not standing for volunteering in the most special units in Israel is only the beginning. We have much more ammunition in our arsenal. Stopping from volunteering in the special units is only the beginning. I was thinking in a different kind of country where you're not such good boys and girls, we might be worrying about a military coup, but yeah. that's not even in the lexicon of what's going on yeah, uh, exactly. here in Israel. That's not even our imagination. You are part of the admired elite of the Israeli Defense Forces. I'm wondering if you're worried about the influence that your actions are going to have on the young soldiers who are receiving their draft notices now. I'll speak personally. My daughter has been drafted. She's supposed to join the army this year. What do you say to her and what do you say to your peers if they look at the considerations that are making you not volunteer and they're saying, well, I believe the same thing, so I shouldn't show up for my uh, required service in the IDF. Would you endorse that position or would you say, no, there's a difference between you and me. I'm volunteering and you are required to do this. I think one of the most toughest points, I think that if I would be right now in the position of being 18 years old, naturally, in a parallel world, I would probably do the same. Going to the elite forces. Yeah. Because I'm 18. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm a bit smarter today. A bit, not much. <laughs> um, I would probably do the same, and that's, of course, the absurd. Because those who criticizing us, and that's what, of course, astonishing here, that's what people perhaps need to understand. Most of them haven't even served in the IDF because 
they believe that Israel should be a religious fundamental country and they have neglected from serving this IDF and some of them of course are, are just doing propaganda but there's a reason why the protest movement of the reservists and the veterans we are we by definition we are we don't want the youth or let's say that those who do their regular uh, saving right now we don't want them to be even formally involved we believe it that it should be us the veterans adults um, because we have to play a very sensitive game in one hand we understand that there's an enemy within that's the coalition that's the uh, government of destruction and on this at the same hand of course it's the government that promoting risk or the yeah or I would say put at risk the, the the country of Israel so we understand that what's going on in Israel right now would put Israel at risk right now against external enemies it's a crazy situation um, but again the enemy is threatening first of all the By definition, the host, it's from within. That's the equation. Hiftach Golov, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope we did a good job. Coming up next, Haaretz defense analyst Amos Harel. Amos Harel, defense analyst for Haaretz, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So of all the headaches that the judicial overhaul is causing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the political fallout, the social rift, the economic implications, do you think that these actions by such a critical element of the country's defense forces is his biggest problem? Maybe we should talk about the headaches that this is causing us, <laughs> Israeli citizens. Uh, but yes, I think that the, of all the different problems he's facing right now, The, he's most concerned about the reservists and more than anything else about the pilots and navigators. Uh, you could have seen it even uh, on Monday when at the beginning of the uh, weekly uh, government meeting, he immediately resumed attacks on uh, what he described as uh, refuseniks among the uh, milwim, among the reservists. Uh, and um, he talked of um, um, a group of, Within the army, which is trying to influence Israeli democracy, well, in fact, these are, of course, uh, civilians. These are citizens who happen to be serving um, as reservists and who are, under extreme circumstances, willing to use uh, their position in order to apply more pressure to stop the judicial overhaul. Uh, but yes, he's extremely concerned, and we, I think we, we haven't seen nothing yet. It will be... much worse than what we've encountered um, until this moment, because if he goes ahead, and this is uh, the way it seems right now, if he goes ahead uh, with legislation at the Knesset next week, what we'll see on top of all those demonstrations and uh, uh, roadblocks and, and everything else that we've witnessed, uh, we'll probably hear of more and more um, reservists uh, announcing immediately that they will stop to uh, serve in the army. And this is more than anything else, this is about the Air Force, because the Air Force relies very heavily on reservists. So we're talking about a step beyond what happened in March when they said, we're not going to show up for training, but if we're really called in 
to defend the country will do it. Are we talking about some form of practical intensification of their refusal to serve? To begin with, we should mention that in, in March, he blinked first. He decided to, to stop legislation and he had to cancel uh, his announcement of, uh, of firing uh, Yoav Gallant from uh, Ministry of uh, Defense. Uh, what we're saying now is that if indeed the legislation um, is, is, pa- is passed or about to pass, they're um, halting altogether their service in the army as of now, uh, more or less. This could happen by Wednesday or Thursday for uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, reserve soldiers, among them hundreds of pilots and navigators. And the IDF chief of staff, Helzi Alevi, last week uh, talked to the cabinet and described what he defined as a red line. We're not giving the actual numbers, but we know that he's um, looking at the possibility of hundreds of pilots and navigators refusing to serve. And for him and for the chief of uh, the Air Force, General Tom Obal, this is extremely uh, troubling because this may mean that the Air Force would be less prepared for a uh, possible war, whether it is um, something that escalates with uh, Hezbollah on the northern border or in the long run, any kind of uh, uh, confrontation with Iran. So the, you just described one aspect of the damage that this uh, reservist strike could do to uh, combat readiness. Are there other aspects or the other uh, groups that are not necessarily combat pilots are something that you could think can be more easily absorbed or the senior officers think that can be you know, more easily handled by uh, strengthening some other aspect of the military um, forces? The, the pilots are at the focus of the discussion because the damage created by their decision could be immediate and it would be relatively um, easy to, to gather what is going on because the Air Force, being more organized uh, than any other branch of the Army, knows exactly what it needs, how many pilots, how many navigators, how many hours of flights, of training, and so on. Um, the other um, the reservists and their actions, uh, this is less clear the, the, the possible influence. But then again, it's quite clear enough uh, that um, these people, if they don't show up, will affect uh, the performance of the different units, perhaps more than anything else, the intelligence branch, which has become huge and relies quite a lot on, on the knowledge and the experience of uh, older uh, reservists. It could affect um, ground forces as well. There are um, on a daily basis, thousands of uh, Milwimniks, of uh, reserve soldiers, serving in all kinds of places like the West Bank, who are called uh, every year uh, to do that. If some of them, 10, 20, 30 percent, refuse to show up because of the current crisis, this would affect the IDF's performance uh, in the West Bank. But it doesn't end there. What about Mossad and Shinbet? Will there be a reaction? Will people actually decide to resign because they disagree with the judicial overhaul. Uh, what would happen regarding the motivation to serve? Uh, 17 and 18-year-olds who usually, uh, not all of them, of course, but many of those uh, uh, talented young men and women who are considered part of the Israeli of, of the future Israeli elite, and usually the path to becoming part of the elite goes through the army and serving in a significant role, whether it's a pilot or a um, a member of a commando unit or um, somebody serving in the um, um, intelligence corps and so on. 
if some of those people, young people, especially um, considering the, the ground forces uh, or service in the West Bank and so on, if some of those young men and women say, uh, we're not going there anymore, uh, things have gotten uh, uh, too troubling from our point of view, not only is Israeli democracy changing because of Netanyahu, he changes the reality on the ground in the West Bank. This is not for us anymore. Their parents' generation, even if they uh, voted left-wing, most people still um, decided to, to, to serve in the West Bank, for instance, in spite of their reservations about the Israeli policies. Would it be the same in two years' time with Smotrich and Benkir calling the shots uh, regarding the West Bank while Israeli, Israel is gradually turning uh, less liberal, less democratic? I think there are, you know, in the long run, it could really give you a headache. And I think the army has not yet really grasped the, the, the full meaning of the possible consequences. It may get worse. We'll see what happens in the next week or so. I think the, from what I've heard from the uh, leaders of the uh, reservist protests and so on, they're very keen on um, applying more power, so to speak, not um, resisting violently, but they are going to take more extreme measures uh, in this struggle. So I, I think the next week would probably be crucial, and we'll see how this evolves, not only for the crisis itself, but regarding the influence on the EIDF and the security apparatus at large. On the political level, Netanyahu and the coalition in general have um, done a good job of trying to smear the protest movement, um, you know, calling them anarchists, calling them traitors, uh, you know, um, painting them as, uh, as undermining the country. They have a more difficult time with this group, right? Because these are literally the country's heroes. These are, you know, this is, you know, not just the elite because they're, they're good at uh, trashing the elites, but these are people who have put their lives on the line for decades to defend the country. They're, they're harder opponents, correct? That's true, but I think um, um, Netanyahu and his camp have long forgotten about actual facts. It doesn't really matter anymore. For instance, look at what happened um, on Sunday. We published in, in Haaretz a story about a former commander of the Israeli Navy SEALs, um, colonel named uh, Nevo Erez, uh, later served um, quite a few years in Mossad. And um, on Sunday, he announced that he would stop uh, going to Miluim as a reservist uh, in the army because of the judicial overhaul. He was appointed um, recently to head a team that was investigating, that uh, led an, a domestic investigation into uh, IDF actions in Gaza and the latest operation in May. So this is somebody who's, who comes from the, um, you know, from the military hardcore, so to speak. And yet immediately after we published that, um, the BB camp did everything in their power in the media and on social media and so on to belittle the story, to announce that he was irrelevant, that he was a 58-year-old uh, Miluimnik who's not, uh, who, who does not really serve, does not represent anything or so on. Now, this guy has thousands of people who served under him in elite units such as Navy SEALs or uh, Duvdevan in the West Bank. Uh, th this caused waves of enthusiasm, I would say, among many reservist soldiers who heard about this and felt that maybe they should do uh, the same. And yet, Bibi's camp, what they're trying to do right now is define everything as black and white. They're the real patriots, uh, the left is inventing this crisis, and they're trying to do two things at once, and there's a sort of a dissonance between the two, because on the one hand, they're claiming that this is 
you know, that this is tiny, this is small, uh, it doesn't have any influence. And on the other hand, they're claiming that the same protest um, movements are ruining the country. You can't have it both ways, either they're uh, massive or they're not. From my point of view, this is getting big. I think the more and more people are uh, following in Nevoel's uh, footsteps. It is true for the pilots as well. And I think we'll see significant numbers uh, refusing to serve. It's up to, in many ways, it's up to the chief of staff, to Herzi Alevi, uh, to decide how to deal with this. Well, the man really stuck in the middle here is Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, who on one hand is responsible for the military. On the other hand, he's a key political figure in the Likud. You reported that he met this week with Herzi Alevi, with other officers, to assess the effect of the protests and the reservist actions. They're going to make a report. They're going to submit the data to Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu. Do you see Gallant once again, as he did in March, sticking his neck out publicly and saying, yes, this is going to endanger our national security and maybe even say it's not worth it? Or do you think he said his piece publicly, he's risked his neck politically already, and, uh, and, and he's going to say what he has to say to Netanyahu behind closed doors and not try to be the hero again? It's hard to say right now. It doesn't seem to be in the cards as we speak. Um, I accompanied um, Gallant to an official visit in Azerbaijan last week. And he seems very tense about the whole issue, quite defensive, trying to uh, avoid any kind of criticism over his uh, change of heart uh, regarding the protest movement. I think for the time being, he, he hopes that somehow Netanyahu uh, would uh, act as the responsible adult and would at one time or another uh, stop uh, legislation or, or reach uh, an agreement about resuming negotiation uh, with the opposition movement and so on. I'm not sure that this is going to happen. I think at one point or another, um, Gallant would be under enormous pressure to act. But then again, he cannot repeat this trick uh, on and on forever. He did uh, what was needed to be done in March, and he did uh, manage to stop Netanyahu. Remember, um, legislation was uh, frozen for about uh, three months. Um, I think he's afraid of risking this politically, but he's uh, between a rock and a hard place. The same goes for different reasons for Halevi and for Tom Bar. Again, at, at least the generals, I think, in their heart, uh, know uh, that they cannot um, um, reach, uh, address this head-on, that they cannot clash with all the those uh, reservist soldiers from the most uh, um, important uh, units of the IDF. Yet they feel complied to to um, announce that they're against a refusal uh, to serve and so on. Um, it would be very, very difficult for all of those uh, three men, both uh, Gallant, uh, Halevi and also Baal, uh, to navigate this uh, terrain. And of course, this is an uncharted territory. No Israeli general has ever experienced anything uh, like what we have encountered right now. I think I know your answer to my final question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does this all have any chance of moving the needle for Netanyahu, or do you feel at this point he's willing to weather damage to any extent to our national security in order to keep this legislation moving forward in some form and hold his coalition together? Honestly, I'm not sure. If you asked me that question about six months ago, I would have said that in the end, in most cases, uh, Netanyahu shows a level of responsibility 
and then when it um, uh, regards uh, Israeli strategic affairs, uh, the, the possibility of war and so on, he does usually behave like a responsible adult. Right now, with his back against the wall, it's harder to say. I still have uh, some kind of hope um, that he would be able to, to, to back down. Right now, he's not showing any signs of doing so. Uh, I think to the, the, the contrary is, uh, is correct. What you saw in his statements uh, on Monday at this government meeting I mentioned uh, was him um, sending a message that he was willing to, to fight this over with the opposition. We'll see how he reacts in the next few days. He still has about a week to maneuver. And maybe, just maybe, and again, I'm not a political analyst or expert, maybe uh, the um, political uh, reporters are slightly overestimating the influence of characters like uh, Levine and Rotman and so on. In the end, it's Netanyahu's show. In the end, he's the one who has to call the shots. And I think that, again, considering the, the, the government situation, um, I, I still have hope that he would back down in the end. Amos Harel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Alison. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests. Iftach Golov and Amos Harel, and to my producer and editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>